0: So page 80, Exodus chapter 40 and verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, on the first day of the month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and you shall put in the ark of the testimony and you shall screen the ark with a veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the Ark of the Testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set up the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water on it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court." Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that's in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and I shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did in the first month. In the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. The next 15 verses tell us uh, just how Moses erected the tabernacle. We're going to pick it up uh, in verse uh, 33. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. I'm keeping reading. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Let's pray. While all scripture is God-breathed, Uh, And so it is uh, your spirit that has just spoken to us. Uh, We pray now that we would continue to hear his voice uh, as we meditate uh, on what uh, we have read. So, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you in your sight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin a series on the book of Leviticus, it, it seems to me... From listening to a few sermons from other ministers, there's only really one way to begin. And that is to apologise for just how boring Leviticus is. Time after time, I've heard this. Sermon series on Leviticus begin with people saying, I know it's dull. I know you've struggled when you've got to it in in a Bible in a year scheme. But honestly, press on, There's, there's gold ahead. If you think about it, that's not a great way to address any part of God's word, is it? I even heard one minister begin by saying, well, at least my sermon won't be more boring than the reading. Imagine that as a way to start a sermon series on the book of Leviticus. And yet, throughout the centuries, it's been the case that, well, Christians have puzzled over this book of Leviticus. You can trace it right back to some of the earliest Christian writings we have. It's a guy called Oregon. Okay, he was a church father, okay, the first three centuries of the church, and even he writes that when he turned to preach uh, Leviticus, there was grumbling in the congregation. I'm sure that won't be the case here at Christ Church Central, but it's not a new problem. Of course, there's all sorts of reasons why it would be terrible to approach the book of Leviticus as if it was, well, dry and dusty, like the sand of the desert in which it was first spoken. Of course, it's God's word, so it can't be dry and dusty. Interestingly, it's the first book that the Jewish children would learn. Children, you might know that the the Jews have what we call the Old Testament as their whole Bible. And if you were a Jewish child, one of the first books you'd be taught would be the book of Leviticus. It's very rarely the case for us, isn't it? When we do Sunday school programs or start teaching our children with little children's Bibles, Leviticus almost never appears. All the little picture Bibles we were given when our children were baptized and things like that, Leviticus doesn't make an appearance. maybe the Day of Atonement. But we start with Genesis and the, the sort of fun stories or seemingly fun stories about Adam and Eve and Noah and his flood and Abraham and Isaac. And we scoot on to David beating up giants and Daniel and the lions and, and Leviticus, woof, hop, skip and a jump over it. But you can see why Jewish children were taught this book. Well, I hope you will begin to see why as we go through it, at least. Actually, this book more than any other would set the pattern for their little boys and girls' lives, not just as children, but as they grew up, uh, it would teach them about what they could and couldn't eat. You know all those rules in the Old Testament about whether you can eat prawns and can you eat pork or can you eat beef or what about chicken? Or, well, they're largely found in the Book of Leviticus. So it set the diet. Okay, what are we going to have for tea this week? Well, it's going to be set by the Book of Leviticus. It, it, it organised their diaries. What do we do on this day of the week or or otherwise? When do we have our holidays? The great festivals when the Jewish people, some of them at least, would go up to Jerusalem to celebrate. They're all laid out in the book of Leviticus. Their worship was laid out in the book of Leviticus. This is going to be a huge theme. What did it mean to worship God all the way through the Old Testament? Well, Leviticus is the book that sets the patterns up. And therefore, it's also, if you like, it sets the scenery, the backdrop for the Gospels. When we read the Gospel accounts, we tend to dive in. And if you like, we approach them from 2018 going backwards, don't we? Okay, we live now and we, sort of, we jump back and we read the Gospels. And it's very easy, therefore, to read them with the same sort of assumptions and understandings of the world that, that we have. And we, we jump back and read the Gospels with those assumptions. So, for instance, we, we meet Jesus um, coming across some lepers and we think, oh, poor lepers, they're ill, they're suffering. It must be so uncomfortable to have skin diseases. And, and isn't it great that Jesus cleans them and makes them better? They can be healthy again. And we, we talk about how Jesus restores us to life. Well, that is true, obviously. Horrible to have a leprosy or a skin disease and great when Jesus heals people. But a Jewish person who knew Leviticus, who, who met saw Le, uh, <coughs> Jesus meeting lepers, wouldn't first of all be thinking they've got a medical problem, but a spiritual problem. They couldn't get into the tabernacle to worship because they have leprosy. Leviticus teaches us all about those kind of issues. It sets a scene for Jesus. And of course, ultimately, the sacrifice of Jesus that rescues us. That's why Leviticus is the central book uh, of what's called the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Five books written, well, ultimately written by God, but through Moses. And Leviticus is deliberately in the middle. I mean, it's in the middle anyway, isn't it? In, the, in terms of the five, it's the third one. But even the way the story works, it's in the middle. And this, this is deliberate. There are parallels. So, Genesis, the first book, and Deuteronomy, the last book, they kind of match each other in some ways. So, just to take one little example, Genesis ends with a, a patriarch, you know, a great figure, blessing the 12 tribes and dying. That's Jacob. Blesses the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, and then he dies. Deuteronomy ends with another great patriarch, Moses, blessing the 12 tribes and then dying. Jump in a step to Exodus and Numbers, the books just either side of Leviticus, and again, they parallel one another a little bit. Exodus and Numbers are both about the Israelites wandering in the desert. In Exodus, they wander out of Egypt and come to Mount Sinai, and in Numbers, they wander away from Mount Sinai towards the promised land, but they are similar stories. They're not the same, but they're similar. Wandering in the desert, grumbling, journeying with God. And so Leviticus is the heart of the Pentateuch, the story that is the foundation of the Bible. And in order to understand it rightly, therefore, we need to understand that Leviticus ultimately is a storybook. It's not a load of old rules. It's not just a set of ceremonies. It's not an instruction manual, but it is a story. In fact, it begins, Leviticus. If you look at verse 1, it begins, And he called. That's how literally the book begins. Now, children, does it say that in your Bible? And he called? It doesn't say and he called, does it? See, the, the ones who've translated our Bible into English have just tidied it up to help us a little bit. The Lord called Moses. But very literally, it begins and he called. Now, who would start a story and he called? If you started, if you picked up a novel and it began and he called, you'd think, well, what's going on? Who's he And what was he doing a minute ago? And he called. So he's obviously been doing something else. Well, Leviticus is meant to be read straight on from the end of Exodus. that's why we started in Exodus. And to understand the story of Leviticus and how it's going to help us, we need to understand the story that's gone before. Two things in particular this morning that has happened en route to God calling Moses and speaking to him. Most of Leviticus is God speaking to Moses. Two things that have happened in the book of Exodus. First of all, God has built a house. Okay, the first thing that has happened, God has built a house. Now, his is a mobile house, a tent. I think some of the, I know some of you children have been camping a bit before. Imagine, okay, you lived in a tent. Okay, rather than in a real brick house, you lived in a tent. For a while, God's house was a tent. Uh, Exodus 40 verse 2, God speaks to Moses and tells him to construct, to build up this tabernacle. The tabernacle is just a tent. In the book of Exodus, God has rescued his people. They were slaves to Pharaoh, building his pyramids and cities. And God has rescued them. But he's rescued them not just because he doesn't like slavery, although he doesn't like slavery. He's rescued them with a purpose. He's rescued them so that he can live with them and meet with them. And they can then worship and serve him. So God's purpose in rescuing the Israelites out of slavery is so that he can meet with them and worship. And they could worship him. He wants to live with his people. Uh, and you can see the kind of house he builds, this kind of tent, described in the first few verses. Uh, it's actually a house with three rooms. In some ways, it's a simple house, a simple tent. Uh, first of all, there is the inner room. Okay, you, you build the tabernacle proper. The tabernacle itself, and this is where the, the little picture might be helpful. If you want to be kind of strictly correct the tabernacle is the inner bit there the the, um, the bit enabled the holy place and the most holy place uh, Moses first of all sets up what is actually a cube shaped room it's as wide and long as it is is it high it gets called the most holy place elsewhere then he puts a screen or a curtain across in verse 3 and builds the next room out which is called the, the just simply the holy place so the most holy place is in the middle the holy place is the next room out. Uh, then outside that, in verse 8, uh, Moses is ter- told to set up a court or a courtyard all around it. Now, the things that look like walls on the picture would actually be the sort of boards covered with material. Okay, so it's kind of, it's a pretty tough tent. But you can see the three rooms, the most holy place, then the holy place, and then the courtyard on the outside. Why has he set his house up like that? Why does he have a three-room tent? Uh, Well, it's all to do with where they are at the moment. Uh, When Leviticus is spoken, in fact, where all the action of Leviticus takes place, is at Mount Sinai. After God rescued his people out of Egypt, he brought them to this mountain. Uh, And when he took them to the mountain, that's where he met them. But when he met them, It wasn't just as if everybody could walk up the mountain. Just flick back a few pages to Exodus 24. This is a meeting between God and his people. It began in chapter 19, it's uh, repeated in 24. Exodus 24. And see if you can see the pattern. Then the Lord, he, the Lord, said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, that's Moses' brother, Nadab and Abihu, his sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come up near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. You See the setup at Mount Sinai? There's three levels. The people, okay, you and me, sort of ordinary God's people, we're at the bottom of the mountain. In fact, we we can't even touch it. Right at the very bottom. The 70 elders, the kind of leaders of God's people, plus a couple of others, Aaron and Aaron's kids, they're allowed to kind of halfway up the mountain. And then one man, Moses, is allowed right up to the very top. And we read that Moses goes up into the cloud and the fire at the very top, and he meets God. He is the only one who goes up into the fiery, cloudy presence of God. Three levels a really really holy bit where God lives at the very very top cloud and fire and only Moses is allowed in one man then a pretty holy place halfway up the mountain where some of the leaders are allowed to go and then at the bottom the place where all God's people are allowed to meet now if you weren't even in God's people you had to be even outside that you weren't even allowed in the camp but for our purposes three zones do you see what's happening with the tabernacle therefore The tabernacle is like a portable Mount Sinai. God has met his people on this mountain, but they can't carry the mountain around. The mountain isn't in Israel. It's not in the promised land. And therefore, they need some way of carrying this meeting place of God around. They can't put the mountain on a truck. And so what they do is they build a kind of mountain tent. Now, children, you've probably never seen a three-story tent, have you? You know that tents don't have stairs, do they? A bit of a disaster. If you tried to build stairs in tents, what would happen? You'd just fall through, wouldn't you? But in some ways, the tent, this tabernacle, is like that mountain. It has the three zones. The courtyard is like the bottom of the mountain where all God's people could meet. The holy place, the first room of the tabernacle proper... Well, only the priests were allowed in there. You had to be one of the special leaders. And the most holy place, only one person was allowed in, the chief priest, the highest priest. And even then, just once a year. And so if you like, you could, it's a 3D diagram, actually. It's too clever, really. But you could turn the diagram on its side and look at it like a mountain. So instead of sort of walking in, you're walking up as you go up and up and up. So imagine the most holy place is on the top. And interestingly, actually, the way it was built helps us understand this. The curtains that hung around the, the, the actual tabernacle bit, that they had gold links all around, okay? gold curtain hooks. But the poles that, that connected into the ground of that central tabernacle bit, they had silver bases. But then you go out a level to the tent that went around the whole courtyard and the rings at the top of the screens had silver hooks, as if they were connecting into the silver foot of the tabernacle itself. And at the bottom, they had bronze feet. So the whole thing is is meant to be like a kind of three-level building, just like like Mount Sinai. So God has built this house, but after he's built it, what's he going to do? Well, children, if you just buy a new house and it's completely empty, what's the first thing you're going to do? Okay, If you've got a completely empty house, what are you going to do? You're going to fill it with furniture, aren't you? And so that's what God does. After he constructs this tabernacle, this tent, or tells Moses to do so, he then fills it with furniture. And each room has its own furniture. So in verse 3, in the most holy place, goes a thing called the Ark of the Testimony, sometimes the Ark of the Covenant. That's the only thing in the most holy place. And that is God's footstool, it's called elsewhere. It's like his throne and then the footstool at the bottom. So in some ways, the most holy place is kind of God's throne room, his living room. Come out of stage to the holy place. Well, what we told is put in there. Well, it's all in verse 4 and 5. Three main things. There's a gold incense altar. In fact, everything in this holy place is made of gold. Gold incense altar. There's a table and a gold table with 12 loaves on it. Loaves of the presents, as they're called, or loaves of showbread. And there's a candlestick, which is shaped like a tree, a gold candlestick. So a table, a candlestick, and some incense burning on an altar. Incense is like, sort of almost like air freshener. Okay, what's this room? This is God's dining room. Okay, table with food on and a candlestick, and sweet-smelling incense. Come out another room, and what do we see? What's Moses told to put in the courtyard? Well, just two things. Uh, verse six and seven. Uh, the altar of the burnt offering and the basin. Okay, this is a much bigger, and it's made of bronze because it's less holy than the stuff in the middle, the gold stuff. And this is where the sacrifices we'll see are actually going to take place. This is where most of the action happens. And a bronze basin, a like big sink. What's this? It's a kitchen. Okay, this is where the cooking happens. The animals are cooked and when you do cooking, you need a wash as well. So there's a washing in the basin. So children, one way to think about the tabernacle is like God's house. His living room or throne room is the most holy place, the top of the mountain. The holy place is like the dining room. And the courtyard is like the kitchen where the sacrifices are happening. Why is it set up like this? Why is so much of Exodus spent explaining about this tabernacle. There's chapters and chapters of it. Two things. First of all, it's to remind God's people where they've come from. To remind God's people where they've come from. Remember, if you're a normal Israelite, you can walk into into the courtyard story. You can't get into the tent in the middle, but you can get into the courtyard. And even as you come in, you're reminded of how you came to be one of God's people. Just think, well, think of the priest coming in. You see at the bottom of the sheet there, uh, the entrance down there at the bottom. Uh, the, think of the priest's walk to work. Okay? As he walks towards God's presence, he walks towards going into the actual tabernacle proper. What does he come across? Well, the first thing he comes across is the bronze altar where all the animals are dying. And that reminds him of the Passover, where those lambs died, were sacrificed instead of the Israelite boys. The reason that Israel are gathered and escaped Egypt is something died in their place. The altar reminds of the sacrifice that set them free. And as he walks on past the sacrifice, he gets to the basin. What does that remind the Israelites of? Well, it reminds them of the waters they came through to be set free, too. Do you remember if they ran out of Egypt? Do you remember? Do any of the children remember what happened? They were being chased by Pharaoh. What happened? brilliant yeah exactly brilliant exactly right they came through the desert they got to the red sea and the red sea parted they came through the waters and the waters symbolically are a picture of cleansing the new testament tells us that so even the priests walk to work reminded them of the kind of old testament gospel if you like we were saved by a sacrifice and through the waters it's not different for us is it we are saved by the sacrifice of christ in our place and then by washing, being washed clean, ultimately by the Spirit. God always wants his people to remember how they became his people. It's often said that the key to the Christian life isn't um, moving on from the gospel, the way you became a Christian, but it's continually going back and back again to the way you became a Christian. Every day you need the gospel. It's one of the reasons it's repeated in our service week by week, just as it would be visibly in the tabernacle worship. That you never go beyond it. We always need to be remembered, to be reminded. Sorry, uh, that ultimately we're, we're God's people because Christ died for us, and then the Holy Spirit washed us clean and connected us to Christ. And actually, most of our sin comes from forgetting the gospel. I was speaking to someone just just this week, not someone in Leeds at all, uh, someone who, who who basically was very angry about how he'd been treated by another church, and it might be right, possibly. But the point was. that that he'd forgotten that he had been forgiven far more than he needed to forgive those who'd sinned against him. He was angry because he thought of himself as righteous. He'd begun to see himself as an innocent victim and forgotten the grace that had been shown to him. What did he need to be reminded of? Well, not simply the commandment, don't be angry. He did need that. But ultimately, the the, the reason for not being angry. You've been forgiven far more than anything than anyone has ever done against you. You never move on from the gospel. So so this tabernacle reminds them where they've come from. It also reminds them where they're going. It's a picture, not just of Sinai. I remember we said that earlier, the three three stages of the mountain. But it's actually a picture, a reminder, not simply of Exodus, the rescue, but of Genesis. The early chapters of Genesis, the creation story. If we'd read Exodus 24 onwards, which is the making of the tabernacle, summarized in chapter 40 we'd see that that in how it's made and when it's made and what it's made of that that God if you like was building a little picture of creation again a new creation so how was it made well how did God create the world again children do you remember this how did God create the world do you remember this God, he spoke didn't he and how, how many how long did it take do you remember how long it took yeah go on Emma seven days brilliant Well, six days and a seventh. Yeah, you're both right, okay? Both right. So seven seven days of creation, aren't they? Well, the tabernacle is made by God giving seven speeches. And the seventh one is about the Sabbath, what you do on the Sabbath in the tabernacle, just like creation. It's not that God needed seven speeches. He could have just done one long one, but it's seven speeches to remind us of the days of creation. That's how it was made. What about when it was made? You see Exodus 40, verse one. When is Moses to make the tabernacle? Not just anytime he fancies it, but... On the first day of the first month. It's the first day of a new year. It's a new start. A new creation, as it were. That's when it's made. And what does he make? Well, actually, the, the very tabernacle itself would remind the Israelites of Eden and the garden there. There's all sorts of things we could talk about. and There's far too much to, to, to go into all of it now. Let me just pick a few things. The way it was set up. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of Eden, what way were they kicked out? They were driven out to the east. So from then onwards, whenever people are going away from God, they go east and east and east. I don't know if that is east, but, you know, for the sake of it now. East and east and East. So when God sets up the tabernacle, he, they're not allowed to put it anywhere they like. They always have to set it up so the entrance is on the east, so that when they come back towards God's presence, they're going west. It's a picture of going back to Eden. When they get there, at least if they're a priest and they can go in, what do they see? Well, the curtains screening off the holy place and the most holy place had cherubim, these angelic creatures sewn into them, just like the Garden of Eden. What did God put outside the Garden of Eden? Eden. When he drove Adam and Eve out, do you remember? Yeah, go on. Absolutely. Brilliant. Exactly, a An special angel, it's called Cherubim, with flaming sword. What is sewn into the entrance to the tabernacle? These Cherubim. They're the only time they occur in, in, in the Old Testament. Guarding Eden and guarding the tabernacle. And even once you got in, what would you see as you looked around? We'd see a candlestick shaped like a tree, we're told. Remind us of the trees in Eden, food knocking around. The tabernacle is a picture of a new creation, the world set to rights again. It's a reminder to Israel, therefore, not just of how they've got to be God's people, but where they're going. God is not just going to save Israel and from ever onwards have them come and worship in a tent. He one day is going to recreate the whole world. That's why the Bible story ends with a massive tabernacle. Another part of the Bible that's quite strange to read, the book of Revelation. When we read Revelation chapters 21 and 22, we see that the world, the new heavens and the new earth, is described like a massive cube. Okay, it's 144,000 square cubits, tall, high, wide. You think, is heaven going to be a massive box? Okay, is that where we're going? One giant cube? Well, no. The, the point is that by the time we get to the new heavens and the new earth, it's as if the whole world, the whole cosmos, the whole universe... Has become a most holy place. The most holy place was a cube, and it's grown and grown and grown until everything is most holy after Christ returns. So, one of the prophets, uh, I love this little bit at the end. It's such a sort of seemingly strange prophecy, but the end uh, in Zechariah, towards the end of Zechariah, uh, he's prophesying about this great day in the future. And he says this, on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses. So children, as the, the horses gallop along, little bells on them. On those bells will be written, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord. Okay, even the pans in your kitchen, your frying pan, okay, your egg pan, all your saucepans are going to be holy in that day because everything is going to be Holy. God's presence will have filled the whole earth, not just one little tent anymore. That is where you're going, Israel. And again, it's what he says to us. That is where everything is headed. One day we will dwell in this great holy place, this most holy place we might even see. So you've got a rough week. You've had a rough week. You're down. You're discouraged. Marriage isn't what you hoped it would be. Work isn't what it hoped you would be. Life isn't what you'd hoped you'd be. You're an Israelite, as you walk to the tent, you see one day it will be better than this. And again, that is what we see in church. One day it just will be better. God is going to make the earth paradise again. But there's a problem. And if you notice, we've got to the end of Exodus. So there's a real problem. Exodus ends in some ways on a bit of a downer. Remember on the mountain? That fiery, cloudy presence of God. Moses could go in. Up he went and he was in. And finally, that fiery, cloudy presence comes and fills the tabernacle. And what happens? Verse 34 of chapter 40. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Even Moses can't get in. That should be a real surprise. He could get in in Sinai. What's happened? It's the same fiery, cloudy presence, the same God. But actually, Moses is not even able to enter now. That's like Prince Charles not being able to get into Buckingham Palace. If he can't get in, well, what hope is there for the rest of us? The only one who's ever been able to enter the presence of God suddenly is driven out. So Exodus ends with this huge question. How 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 can God's living place become a real meeting place? I don't know if you notice, it's sort of subtle, but there are two words for this tent used throughout Exodus 40. Look at verse 2. On the first day of the month, you shall erect the tabernacle, the tent. That's the dwelling place. i be sort of literal about it. But it's the tabernacle, the dwelling place of the tent of meeting. Same in verse uh, 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, they're the same building, they're the same tent but two different names for it. One is the dwelling place where God lives. Another is the the meeting place. By the end of Exodus, the tabernacle has become God's living place. He's down there living with the people, But, but they can't meet because they're driven out. And that's where Leviticus comes in. And the Lord called. That little first verse of Leviticus is actually great good news. The Lord did call Moses. Uh, The book of Leviticus is called by the Jews. You speak Hebrew, the language it's written in. The book is called, and he called. So if we were in in the synagogue today, I'd have said, can you turn to, and he called, chapter one. Not Leviticus, chapter one. And he called Moses from the tent of meeting, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering... You shall bring your offering. And he goes on to teach about offerings. We're going to come to that. You will be able to come near to me. Offerings that, again, if you translate them really literally, are, are bring nearings. Okay, we don't have that. It it's not a word in English, is it? So offering is a good word. But when you bring your bring nearing, you will be able to come near to me, says God. Leviticus is about how the dwelling place of God becomes the meeting place of God and his people. And so what's it going to do for us, God willing? Which is going to teach us about two things primarily. It's going to teach us about how in Christ we get into God's presence. And also how in Christ we're renewed in God's presence. It's going to teach us about the gospel, Christ's once and for all work, how he saves us, rescues us, brings us into God's presence once and for all. But it's also going to teach us about worship what it means to be called before the Lord in in worship week by week. So just to be close, I want to finish with another picture from the book of Leviticus. Flick on a few chapters, chapter 24. In some ways we've seen a little bit of this already, but chapter 24 of Leviticus. And we read about what's going on in that holy place, We're zooming in on the table, the bread of presence. What's Moses told? Verse 5. You should take fine flour, bake 12 loaves from it. So on that table are 12 loaves. And you will set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. So these, these loaves, these 12 loaves, are in God's presence. You should put frankincense on each pile. Every Sabbath, verse uh, 8, every Sabbath Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. So the bread is renewed every Sabbath changed as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons and they shall eat it in a holy place. The, the way the whole setup is described is that these 12 loaves sit, they're the bread of the presence they're called, they sit on that gold table in the Lord's house. And actually the way the candlestick, see the way the candlestick is just opposite? The way the candlestick is described, we won't look at it now, particularly in the book of Numbers, is it, it, it's not just a normal candlestick where the kind of flames go up and lights up the whole room, that the candlestick shines like forwards, i.e. onto the bread. And, and commentators who studied Leviticus have picked up on this and said, "Look, that is a picture, well, a picture of what? A picture of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel, they're the 12 loaves, dwelling in God's presence with, with his, his light shining on them. Remember the blessing, the benediction the priest proclaims over the people of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. That is pictured in the tabernacle. God's face, his light is shining on the people of Israel. And he's feeding them with the 12 loaves. That ultimately is what Christ is going to do for us. He's going to bring us into God's presence where God's face will shine upon us and all will be well. In the new creation, everything is renewed and we will see him face to face. His, his presence will warm us. He will feed us. And we will dwell in his, with his blessing forever. This is going to give us a fuller picture of Christ. Not just a little outline, but colour in the detail. And it's also going to teach us how we can be renewed. See, verse 8, every Sabbath day, every appointed day, the loaves are renewed in God's presence. So Leviticus will have something to say to us about how on the appointed day we meet and are renewed in God's presence. As we come before him in worship. God clearly cares about how he is approached, how he is worshipped. Um, God does not say to Moses, hey, look, now I'm dwelling in the tabernacle. Why don't you have a little bit of a think about how you like to worship me? You know, do it whenever you like. Do it however you like. No, he sets out how he wants to be worshipped. Now, of course, we don't worship in exactly the same way as the Israelites. We're not going to start sacrificing goats and spraying blood all over the place. But God hasn't changed his mind in terms of, Being in charge of how we worship him. In fact, in the New Testament, we're told that the father seeks only one thing. There's only one place in the New Testament we're told the father seeks anything. What is it? Scroll through your brain. What is it, the one thing that the father seeks in the New Testament? It's not sons and daughters, or children, or servants, or a people, or a church, or a bride for his son. Those things are all true but they're never stated explicitly. Only one thing we're told, the father seeks. John 4, worshippers. That's what the father seeks. And that is why he sent his son, to live, to die, to be the dwelling place. John tells us that Jesus tabernacled among us. He is God dwelling with us. That is why Christ is not just the dwelling place of God, but also the meeting place. If you want to meet God, you come to him now in Christ. There is no other way. But now that God has become man, dwelled among us, there is no way that God can abandon us anymore. God and humanity will never be pulled apart because they've fused together in Christ. Heaven and earth have kissed, quite one of the old Puritans, And they'll never separate. Christ has married the church, married his bride, and they will never divorce. That's why if you're with Christ, however much of a failure you are, however sinful you are, however down in your soul you might be, you will not be cast off. God cannot abandon you because he cannot abandon his own son. He is both the dwelling place and the meeting place. And Leviticus, God willing, will expand our picture of the great blessing it is to have Christ and to have our Father's face shine upon us. Let's pray before we sing again. Our Father, it is a staggering thing to think that you are willing to dwell on earth, uh, that you are willing to come down into the dusty sand of the desert of Sinai and meet with your people. Father, it is even more astounding to think that uh, your Son, was willing to become one of us, to take on flesh, uh, that his feet, uh, the feet of Yahweh, have trod in the sand of Galilee. We praise you, therefore, that you have not abandoned mankind, that there is a way for us to meet you and to dwell with you forever. We pray, therefore, that you would bind us to Christ, now we pray that you would grant us an increasing measure of faith in him. Uh, anoint us, your church, your temple, uh, your tabernacle, more and more. We pray with your spirit, just as Moses anointed that tabernacle with oil. And might we increasingly know the joy, even now, of what it is to be renewed in your presence week by week. Father, you seek worshippers and we long to be those worshippers. Transform us, therefore, in Christ's image. For we ask in his name. Amen.